it's episode five. It's the Branching Factor podcast. We are here. We are here. Five episodes in. I can't believe we've made it this far, but this is it. We've been building to this moment. This has been the key moment. Getting it all together. We're going to have a big shindig. I'm your host, Tommy Thompson, but of course, what you really want to see is the rest of my wonderful co-hosts. As we see right now, if you're watching us on the video version, everyone is here after four episodes of one-on-one. This is our full-on Voltron madness as all five of us are in the same space at once. Anne's barely awake. We're all on our lunch breaks. We don't really know what's going on. Quang's just resurfaced after a month of hard work. It's going to be absolute chaos, but I am happy to bring you here. Please give a warm welcome. First of all, Quang, how are we doing, sir? Hello. Uh, thanks for having us. Uh, great to be back. I don't know what's going on. Um, I'm very confused, but here we are. Let's do this. But that's it. <laughs> don't know what's going on. I'm slightly confused. That's the episode title. And you're just awake over in the US. How are you? <laughs> I was like, oh, I don't need to say anything because Quang already said it for me. Okay, right. Well, hang on. Let's let's pivot over to people who are a little bit more plugged in. George, George, you're out in the wild. How's it going out there? Out in the wild. It's it's okay out here, Tommy. It's it's scary, but we're surviving. I think that's all we can do in life. <laughs> we're really bringing the energy down. I thought I'd bring the energy up, given Ben's music is just so intense, and everyone's like, "Oh yeah, so I'm here, and it's all right." But uh, but yeah, like Mike, how are you, sir? How are you doing? Oh, I think I froze for a bit there. I'm feeling, I'm feeling good, Tommy. I think you, I think you've said hello to me. I'm doing great. I'm glad to be here. Um, it's cold. It's snowy here in London today. Um, but uh, I'm wrapped up, warm. Had a cup of tea, ready to talk about games. Fantastic. That's the good kind of like lo-fi vibes that actually maybe we should have went in with at the start of this episode rather than my like super high energy. But yes, it is snowing out here in the UK. I'm even for myself just outside of London. We've got quite a lot of snow going on. Um. Typical March, nothing nothing untoward or uncommon about this particular freak weather incident. But hey, you can't see the weather in a podcast. This is us, it's the Branching Factor podcast. We've got the whole cast here after all of our previous episodes up until now in which I've sat and interviewed everyone individually to find out why they're awesome and why they're part of this podcast. And not just because I said, oh, please, could you come and help me because I really need some podcast hosts because <laughs> I'm stupid enough to start this whole experiment as my internet is collapsing while we're recording. But anyway... The Branching Factor podcast is another gaming podcast because we didn't have enough of these to discuss topics of interest to us. All of us are in and around gaming, whether it's in the games industry, whether we're actual game developers, whether we are games researchers and game scholars. It's all about demystifying all things games. That's what we're doing here. And so we're hoping that you can enjoy it because we're going to discuss things in a moderately intelligent way. And yeah, that's it. So this is the first time we're all here. All five of us are here and I'm super jazzed. Actually, it isn't the first time. And I don't just mean because the internet collapsed on me 10 minutes into this. <laughs> we did record an unreleased episode where because yeah. everyone hadn't met before. So like, you know, George and Quang know each other and Mike and Anne know each other and I know all of you. But yeah, we'll never air it. Um, not that it's really juicy or anything. It's too yeah, that's what it is. No, it's it's a perfectly. I've I've listened to it a couple of times. It's great, but just like, ah, it's all good. But yeah, how how are we all doing? How how are things? No one good. wants to start. It's a bit. It's, it's been an, a bit of low a nice, energy. A nice time of the year. I like this time of the year. It's spring is just around the corner. 
the academic year is in full flow now. <laughs> GDC is coming up. So, well, that, that's the only bad part is because everyone that we know in the games industry is freaking out. But I, I don't have to yes. do anything, so I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, I'm freaking out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like how, I like that you have spring behind you. Yeah, Mike. yeah. Uh, this is yeah. Video Just content only, your, but I've got a nice. Yeah, look out your window, and there's spring. It's not snowing. How many of you are any of you going to GDC? Sorry, I realize I put my I put my hand up (laughs) in a podcast, which is great. I've not been to GDC since 2017. It's prohibitively expensive for small Wendy's. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, That was the one year I went as well. That's the only time I've been 2017. Oh yeah, oh, you were. I, I didn't see you there. <laughs> yeah, I basically I didn't move from this one room for the whole four days. <laughs> yeah, you were you were showcasing Rogue Process, right? I was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I got to speak on the tech toolbox. It was a good time, but it was it was it's a wild event. I don't know how people do it uh, on a regular basis. Um, I definitely sympathise with you. I hope you have a nice time, though, Tommy. Yeah. So <laughs> I was going to I was going to say for the for the audience, like if you're not familiar, this is the Game Developers Conference. It runs for about five days out in it runs in the Moscow Center in San Francisco. This is like so. Funnily enough, I think in previous episodes we talked about going to develop. So Quang and I were Quang, myself, and George were all there, and it's like that's the big convergence point for like the British games industry. So GDC is like the big convergence point for the entire industry. But as Quang's uh, intimated there, it's prohibitively expensive to get to. The tickets are ridiculously expensive, never mind getting your flights and hotel and whatever. Um, So this is my first time going. And uh, so I'll put my hand up and say, again, great audio content, but I get a free ticket because I'm one of the AI, I'm one of the advisors to the AI summit. So I help organize one of the tracks that runs at GDC. And that is already taking a huge amount of the cost out of being able to go to the event. Um, And also we tend to get told when all the hotel reservation things open up. So you tend to be able to book (laughs) Uh your hot. I, so funnily enough, I did a, I did a a bit of contract work. I can't, I won't say who, but they paid me quite nicely. And I immediately took the money they gave me because I got paid this within a 48 hour window of the GDC hotels opening up. And I immediately booked my hotel and my flight with it. Like the rest of that money, I didn't even see. It was just, that is GDC paid for, you know? Nice. Um, so that was, that was quite nice um, to be able to do that. But yeah, I'm excited because I've never done it. And um, I've put out a thing for people to book appointments with me and stuff like that. And I've actually had a lot of people reach out going, yeah, we'd love to meet you, including people from higher positions than I expect from big companies going, yeah, we've watched your stuff for years and we'd love to actually meet you. I'm like, okay, that's weird. <laughs> um, and I even had someone in our Discord server saying, oh yeah, you're going to be there. That's great. I'm like, how will I find you? I'm like, just follow the sound of my voice. Like just key in <laughs> on it, which has happened at other events where actually um, I still tell that story about when George, when you ran Games Forum in London, I still remember um, meeting Mark Drew actually of the Level Design Podcast because he heard me from the other side of the room and he was just like, oh, Tommy's here. And he keyed, because he didn't know what I looked like and he's just kind of keying in and then he found me. And of course I knew what he looked like because he's always online with his mustache. Um, I was going to say, and you don't know Mark, but he's got a very pronounced mustache. Um, and then subsequently he was, I think like he came over, said hi. And he's like, have you met Rami Ismail before? And I'm like, oh, properly. Hey, how you doing? And then he and I had a conversation about the rats in fear. Um, there you go. That's my story about people finding me at conferences based on my voice. 
I, I don't think it's um... at, at JDC, it's thousands and thousands of people there. Uh, yeah. When I went, it was almost impossible to find anyone unless you organize something. Yeah. It's insane. Yes. Um, yeah. Tempted to buy more AI in games t-shirts. That way people can just stop me because they'll see it and go, you're probably the only person that's bought one. And then if I find anyone else that's wearing one, then I know they're a fan. <laughs> also, based on the number of sales we've had on the merch store so far, I could probably narrow down who it is. <laughs> <laughs> Store.aiingames.com. You can even get a Branching Factor t-shirt. Don't you know? I, uh, I guess this episode's going to come out after GDC, maybe, but um, if anyone's listening yeah. and maybe they're kind of interested in indie stuff or, or other things, there is something that called Not GDC that runs uh, parallel to GDC, where people put up talks and videos and stuff just to kind of share their expertise in, a, in an informal way. Um, so by the time you hear this episode, this year's talks and posts should be up online. Um, and it's got a new website, new organization this year. Um, I can't remember the URL, but if you look for Not GDC on Twitter or Google, you'll find it. Good call, good call. Because there's always, I think even actually, Quang, you when it developed, you do you were doing like the game maker meetup. So there's always stuff that happens around these bigger events. So even if you aren't going to the main talks or what have you, there's always like so many other relevant adjacent events going on that are worth checking out. Oh, for, for the record, it, no, I'm going to cut you off, no, Tommy. No, go it. <laughs> for the record, it is not gdc.io. Is the URL. Thank you so Fantastic. much. <laughs> I, I am a big fan of on Twitter, uh, the hashtag not GDC hashtag in terms of people not going in solidarity. Solidarity, so you don't feel as long because it's very easy to feel the FOMO about GDC because everyone talks about it. And it's the big event, but the, there are way more people not going to GDC than there are actually at GDC, and it's good to remember that, that that's a thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Like it was weird knowing that I was going this year that because it, it's like, yeah, there, there is that. I think there is a bit of a, a rightful stigma that's actually attached to the event in some regards. It is prohibitively expensive. It's also quite exclusionary at times. It can be different. And I say this is fully throwing my hands up as somebody who helps organize it. There's also issues with the fact it takes place in San Francisco. It's a difficult place to get to. It denies people of certain countries to actually get to it, which is an ongoing issue as well. Um, so funnily enough, actually, I'm going to vlog it while I'm there. I wanted to do a sort of this is what actually this is about. And also just kind of demystify it a little bit of like, ultimately, if GDC probably isn't that dramatic or as exciting as you think from once you've been there, it's another event, which is awesome and great because you get to network and stuff. But it's it's a, just another event. Like I remember talking to people, I went to E3 like a decade ago and people said to me, oh my God, like what's E3 like? Like noisy and noisy. That, that... <laughs> That was like my number one bit of feedback. Also, Mario Kart 8 is great, I think, was like my general consensus. Because um, it was the year they had... today. Yep, yep. Every Tuesday and Thursday over in the Discord. <laughs> George, actually, on that note, it was your birthday recently, was it not? It was indeed, yes. Uh, it, was my, it was my birthday a couple of days prior to this record. So... Happy birthday. Uh, that was lovely. Belated. Thank you. Uh, yes, uh, it continuing to be alive. Uh, that's uh, an ongoing success. Good work. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Congratulations. Like, you know, I, I think one of the important things in life is to always set your expectations low because you can beat it. And uh, I think ongoing survival is just, you know, the most base of expectations. So uh, please, please to be doing that. But it, it means, yeah, I mean, 
I've been sort of very busy in, in terms of the new role and everything. So I missed out on my birthday rules uh, where, where you get to set the rules for, yeah, for play that... in terms of uh, our Mario Kart sessions. So I hope something suitably crazy happened in my absence. So so actually, yeah, so this is the only reason I knew it was your birthday is because someone in our Mario Kart server maintains a record of everyone's birthdays so that they know, because when it's your birthday, you get special rules. Um, Liam did get his special rules this week, which on Tuesday, which was everyone just races as their me. That was it. Um, wasn't quite as dramatic. I'm still upset about Violet's one from last year, which was everyone has to be a Yoshi and everyone has to be on one of the bikes. It was That's awful. Such a cool idea. I it love was that. yeah. Um, the the worst bit is recently they've added was it custom item rules now in private games. Yeah. Um, so, so you now have an extra layer of absolute mayhem if someone chooses to set up basically a sadistic rule set of like bombs and red shells only, where you know it's like you've got a vague possibility of defending yourself, but it's just absolute madness. Uh, so that's fun. I was going to say that was my birthday. Um, my birthday rules this year were uh, same, any vehicle, any character, 150cc, but the only three items available, four items available were lightning bolts, blue shells, invincibility stars, and bullet bills. So you couldn't really take it seriously in a competitive sense. I had a lot of, a lot of negative feedback off the back of that one. <laughs> yeah. <And> rightly so. <laughs> but maybe we'll have you back and, you know, just because you missed it doesn't mean, you know, you don't get the chance. Um, yeah, Quang, I'll, so you... I'll, I'll come back in. Yeah, we'll see you at some point. Quang, you're, you're back in the world. Uh, you, as you were saying at the start, you've been relatively, I don't know, offline. You've been super busy, of course. Um, with another run of all oh, your Game Boy games. What, what's been happening with that? Sounds like you've had a very busy few weeks. Yeah, so um, amongst trying to finish our current game we're working on, which is Diffused, a little turn-based puzzle game where you're a little robot who diffuses bombs, uh, we also did a third run, physical print run, of our previous Game Boy game, Super Jetpack DX, uh, which required me to uh, uh, take pre-orders, and then go physically order the boxes, the manuals, the cartridges, um, wow. the inlays uh, from various places, get that coordinated. And when they arrive, then I'm going to have to physically ma uh, put them all together and then distribute them around the world. We sold uh, just shy of 70 copies this time around on this, third, on this run, which is great. Uh, from everywhere, from Australia to America to uh I think Indonesia is a lot of places, I think, um, that I have to send them out to, uh, which is great. Uh, just it's more work that I need to be doing right now because I should be coding um, and the game needs to be finished and I still have to do logistics as well. It's a full-time operation for more than one person. Sounds like we need to have a special episode of Branching Factor where it's just us all sitting next to each other, like making up the box, putting the manual in, <laughs> exactly. putting the cartridge in, and then it's just like we're just talking through it as like every every instance of the game is is getting boxed up and ready to ship. It would probably save you a bit of time. Um, or not, it might actually make things worse and then you have to go back and do it all over again. It's like when you have one of those, um, you move to a new place and you have a painting party or your friends come over and, and paint, help you paint. I have like a boxing party and people come over and we box up the games. Absolutely. Yeah. 
I, I'm sure people would love to help, honestly. I just oh, wow. realized I just realized in our video version for everyone who's on video that I'm the only one that still has his surname. So I need to edit that. <laughs> Mike, Mike, you keep talking while I fix this particular this particular conundrum. How many companies will, will kind of print Game Boy cartridges? Are there many to choose from? Or you know, is it is it quite a difficult thing to do? So currently at the moment there off the top of my head, there's at least eight publishers wow. that will publish Game Boy games. Um there are various places that will manufacture the cartridges. Um, I'm doing this. Uh, Jetpack DX is done through me only, so I have to source the pieces individually. And I thought for my next game, I'm not doing that again. <laughs> so our new game, Diffused, is being done through a publisher, and they're going to look after logistics. Mm. Um, but because we're doing a third print run of Super Jetpack DX, I'm doing that again physically myself. Um, there are various people who manufacture them. It's, it's a small but a very passionate uh sector of video games uh, the retro community is wonderful um and the game community uh, now spans more than just the people who were around at original conception that a lot of younger people getting into the modding scene and the chiptune scene and game was a big part of that which is great all right yeah yeah i'm a big fan of game boy chiptune music Nice. Uh, Actually, you check out our, our new game, Diffuse. It's got an incredible soundtrack uh, by NE7, who's uh, been around main Game Boy music since uh, the 2000s, if not soon earlier than that. And it's an incredible soundtrack. I can't wait to have it out in the wild and people hear it. Amazing. That's awesome. I'm checking the notes, and actually, two things. First of all, I did the top production team has pointed out they now actually want George to help to actually organize a podcast because we joked about it in the first episode. And apparently because we're all in the greater London area, that means we're all 10 minutes from each other. So mm -hmm. obviously we can do a podcast. I have no idea. George, is this even feasible? How do we do this? I, I think it's pretty straightforward. Uh, I think it's the classic thing of everyone gives a rough idea of what their nearest station and or home is. And then we just go and whack basically a pub somewhere in the middle of it and just i think the the important things are setting it up so that we do it at kind of a sort of a nice dead time for the pub so <laughs> you know hitting it hitting sort of like early afternoon before any kind of rush has sort of settled in so that we can we can get that there or the other thing is to to lean on one of the many gaming uh, pubs and bars around london you know heading off to loading maybe to go and do one that uh, which was, is yeah uh, yeah, that's 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 probably the winner because Jimmy will probably just let us in a couple of hours early before uh, the hordes arrive, so uh, we can get in both a podcast record and, most importantly, uh, a delicious pint. Mm. Mm, so, Anne, right. if you want to start packing now, um, yeah, we'll... that's cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll meet you there in I don't know twelve hours. <laughs> Pay for or, Anne's flight or... by supporting us at patreon.com forward slash AINA.com. <laughs> we should make that a stretch goal for the Patreon as we're going to do a live episode where we fly Anne over to the UK. That's That should be. I'm oh my God, that it would be amazing. I mean, that's that's hustle, Tommy. I'm, I'm loving that hustle. But, uh, the other Tommy, suggestion... can't, can't you, Tommy, can't you fly all of us over to America instead? Yeah. That's the second that's, stretch goal. I was going to say, that's the stretch stretch goal. Right. I was going to say, this episode is now brought to you by NordVPN, goodoldgames.com, uh, Squarespace. Uh, <laughs> just list all these sponsors. Casper, mattresses. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then the third stretch goal is that we all fly. To yeah. somewhere else. 
so, to the yeah. Caribbean or something. I don't know. Let's work that. Yes, let's, yeah. let's do that. Yeah. Good yeah. acoustics over there. Uh. I heard. <laughs> yeah. The best I've heard. Patreon.com forward slash AI and games. You heard it here. <laughs> I'm going to have to go and add those stretch goals in now. Oh, dear. Ah. Oh. Right, well, we take a quick break and then we'll go and quickly, ch- and then we're going to chat about some games, I think. Chat about what we've been playing. Oh, nice. right. So if you have supported us on patreon.com forward slash AI and games, your service will not be interrupted. But if you haven't, well, you just got to listen to me read out a bunch of adverts. <laughs> there we go. That's a perfect return back into the podcast. We're up and running again. We've, we've just solved one of Quang's problems. We're going to get Anne's students to do it for him. Crowdsourcing, Game Boy, <laughs> Game Boy shipping and logistics. Perfect. Let's talk about some video games, what we've been up to. So, George, I was going to say, we're going to throw it over to you, sir. I know your time is precious. You wrote down Link's Awakening. And is this actually the original Game Boy one or were you over, are you over in Switchland? What are we doing? I mean, first, first of all, Tommy, everyone's time is precious. Make sure, make sure you use what you got, everybody. Um, so, no, it's not um, the Game Boy version; it's the Switch version. And I, uh, I was lucky enough to go to Nepal for a couple of weeks earlier this year for a wedding, and I needed something to keep myself entertained for a fairly long flight. And in between those tiny pockets of time that you have when you're sort of sat in a hotel somewhere, and it kind of felt like the perfect holiday game really and i think there, there were probably like a few reasons for it so the first one i think that like you've alluded it to um because it was originally on the game boy and as a handheld game it's obviously even historically been designed from the ground up to be something that you can sort of pick up play play in fairly short stints so you know everything is sort of nicely divided into kind of like 45 90 minutes sort of bite-sized chunks where if you crack on and really get on with something you can pretty much go from sort of starting a quest to going all your way through to the dungeon get to the boss beat it fantastic so so it's perfect for that but it's also because it's got the literal dreamlike quality to it because it is you know obviously all set within the framework of link essentially dreaming this while he's basically drowning in an ocean um it it's creates this kind of no oh, spoilers exactly like, that's it you know it's uh apologies to uh anyone who's um not managed to get around to it over the last 25 years but anyway um the the important point was it, it, the game itself just sort of really majors in on that whole dreamlike quality and it, it creates quite a different feeling and environment to a lot of the other Zelda games where in sort of one part it's kind of like sort of semi-whimsical but then also sort of like an interesting kind of undercurrent underneath it but you know with that plus the kind of the new art style that I've got for the Switch version which is almost like toy-like it it just creates this sort of all-round vibe that it is a game to be played when you are on a break so yeah, that's that's the big thing that I've played this year. Actually, did, um, you know, kept dipping in on all kinds, but but that's the one that really stood out. Did you did you play the original on the Game Boy? So I didn't play the original on the Game Boy. Yeah. I played Oracle of Seasons uh, when that came out, and uh, the Oracle games. I think you know are always quite interesting. I mean, especially that kind of sort of sense of having the kind of Pokemon Red, Pokemon Blue kind of a linkage but within the context of two different Zelda adventures it was quite interesting. But yeah, it's the first time that I played it. And as a result, it's, it's, 
immediately kind of jumped into my thinking about which Zelda games I, I most enjoy anyway. And one of the things that really stands out is the ones that do something quite different the ones that I tend to be drawn towards. So, you know, Breath of the Wild, obviously kind of breaking the formula and doing something, you know, much more open world. Um, but then prior to Link's Awakening, the other one that stood out was always Majora's Mask. You know, there's that sense of, I mean, I loved Ocarina of Time, but there was something about Majora's Mask justifying its existence. You know, you've been told to ship another game in two years and reuse all of these assets. How do you make <laughs> it worth worth playing? Well, you do something really narratively interesting. And so Link's Awakening for me kind of fits into that sort of space as well of being like, uh, it is a Zelda game, but it's just doing something a little bit more unusual. So yeah, big fan of that. Mm. It's, it's interesting because I, I I did play, I played Link's Awakening, I think last year, but I did play the original version of it. And so for me, it was more, I didn't really zone in on that particular quality because I've experienced it already. And it was more, how have they adapted this to a more modern format, how does it play on the Switch, the, the aesthetic and style and what have you? I wonder then, giving your, like you said, this focus on slightly off-piste Zelda, whether, did you ever try um, Link Between Worlds, which is the one on the 3DS? Because yeah, that was that was one I loved, actually. Yeah, and I, I think with Link Between Worlds, it, it was odd because it was almost like a sort of pseudo-sequel to a link to the past, you know, in terms of the sense of, you know, based in the same same kind yeah. of world, but many years later. Um, but then obviously, you know, the whole gimmick with that one is Link turning himself into a painting form and kind of charging around walls and various things like that. Um, but I think as well that that had a load of interesting mechanics around things like renting the items that you need for different dungeons so you know you would have a kind of a different approach to getting that the key item that moves you on to the next bit of the game and ultimately that that sense that you could kind of tackle things in a variety of orders you know i think there was a point where i think after sort of the original nes game where it ended up going into sort of more of a kind of a linear approach. And then I think one of the big things with the series is it's kind of opened back out in towards you get to choose much more of what you do and in what order. Um, but I think that's what's going to be interesting for, for Tears of the Kingdom as well is going to be seeing to what extent does, does that sort of freedom continue versus to what extent do they decide to reintroduce things like traditional dungeons? Because I think that was one of the few things that a lot of people were saying about Breath of the Wild uh, outside of weapon degradation was the dungeons themselves were perhaps you know a little bit underwhelming like interesting little puzzle boxes but not what we'd come to sort of expect from a Zelda game so it'll be interesting to see what what happens there i saw um you mentioned uh oracle of ages there and obviously oracle season's been a two-packer um i understand if i'm correctly it was capcom that designed those ones yeah and it's interesting to see how some another company takes the franchise and runs with it because oh, obviously it's been traditionally been Nintendo and Nintendo have formed out other franchises to other companies. Um, yeah. But how, how did you feel uh, the Oracle games compared to the other Zelda games? Well, it, it was always interesting because I, I felt because Capcom also did some of the Game Boy Advance games as well. I have a feeling I feel like Minish Cap uh, might well have been. So, I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah, I, I need someone will need to fact check me on that. But I, I feel like one of the things about um, Season and Ages is, um, I mean, so I hadn't played the Game Boy version of Link's Awakening, but I think it's basically popped up onto the virtual console, and I think obviously they're using the same foundation so it feels very like 
I think that basically having gone and sort of very briefly did around with it, they, they feel like they are sort of quite authentically Zelda-y games, which I think is um, a pretty solid achievement considering uh, the fact that obviously it's so sort of closely associated with how Nintendo handle it. And going back to Link's Awakening, you know, there is no Zelda, there is no Ganondorf, you know, those, those it's, it's an entirely different world and construction. And I think that's what makes it quite interesting. I never knew Capcom made Zelda games. Uh, yeah. Never, yeah, it was amazing. Confirmed yeah. Minish Cap was also Capcom. I quickly looked it up there. There we go. There you go. I've never played Sorry, any of the Capcom ones, funnily enough. Those are like the Game Boy Advance Zelda games are like my notable gap in my Zelda um, experience. So I feel, I think they're, is it they're coming to the Nintendo Switch Online, I think, as well, as part of the new Game Boy emulation. Yeah. I, I think so. I mean, I think realistically yeah i think that they're coming along i was just thinking about the only time that deviation from the formula didn't really work for me and that was spirit tracks uh where i think the idea of riding a train uh, around the landscape was less fun in reality um you know it was one of those things that you know the, the inner train spotter was um you know excited by the possibility of being basically like uh Oh, it's Link driving a train. This is great. And then you were like, oh, yeah, no, there's a, there's a reason why trains aren't usually used for travel mechanics. It's because they're, they're not <laughs> great for exploring. You're kind of, you are restricted for some reason, um, you know. But yes, so um, I, I think it is interesting to see how, if you do get a chance to play any of the Capcom games, they're, they're sort of quite faithful while also being maybe sort of a, a little bit sort of distinguished, I think, especially in terms of like, having a bit of a different character to them um, and i think maybe just a little bit more sort of like a little bit more character around the fringes so it's well, well worth sort of exploring on that basis yeah it actually, reminds I... me of those um those like what would your dream like pick a developer and give them a franchise you know kind of twitter prompts um capcom to make yeah. a zelda game like it sounds like one of those yeah yeah, that's it. And, and you don't have lots of door opening animations. That's the key thing. So. <laughs> Particularly around the early ninety, the early two thousands as well. Like Capcom were kind of Capcom. I think were another one of their high points, I guess, in in that era. Like they'd been very. They were actually one of the reasons I have always been a big fan of Capcom is because they were probably one of the most ardent third party supporters of the Dreamcast. And there are so many fantastic games that released exclusively on that platform or later get ported over to like the PS two or what have you. Um, I have confirmed Legend of Zelda The Minish Cap is one of the games that's currently available on the Game Boy Advance emulator on Nintendo Switch Online. So if you do have that, um, go check it out. Oh, there we go. I'm excited because they're bringing Metroid Fusion to it if they haven't already, which I played a lot of Metroid Fusion. That was that was actually my first Metroid game that I really got into and was like, I get this now. I understand why people dig me. I couldn't get into Super Metroid, but Metroid Fusion, I, I love that game. So good. If you're a regular internet user, you're probably pretty conscious about your safety while, you know, wandering around in this wonderful virtual space. Not least because you don't want people to know you've been binging all the content with my voice in it. I mean, heaven forbid. This is where having a really solid VPN or virtual private network can be a boost. By using NordVPN, you can then go about your business on the internet without worrying about you or your data being tracked. Me. I like to use it when I'm researching a new video, and it sometimes results in my going into some of the dark and damp corners of the internet. Ooh. But 
you know, it also comes in handy for all the other reasons you would use a VPN, like streaming region locked content or occasionally buying a game from an overseas storefront, which is actually super handy in my line of work sometimes. Head on over to nordvpn.com forward slash AI in games to get a very special AI in games infused discount on a NordVPN subscription, complete with a 30 day money back guarantee. That's nordvpn.com forward slash AI in games. The link and all the other relevant details are also available in the episode notes too. So I want to, I want to, the segue across because I know George talked about this way back in his episode, but Mike has recently been playing Pentiment of late. How are we finding mm. that? Uh, it's it's fascinating. It's it's a really really interesting uh, game, and um, there's a just a lot to. I think in the wake of Disco Elysium, lots of people are experiencing different types of narrative games and thinking about what they want from narrative driven games. And lots of people that might not normally be playing them are suddenly more interested in them. Like I think Pentiment was not like a high budget game, but it's out on Game Pass and lots of people have tried it that might not have normally. Um, but I've just found so much to love about it. And I went in relatively knowing very little about it, which I think also helped. Um, but it does some fascinating stuff. Like it's it's portrayal of just everyday life or it's portrayal of like Christianity in 15th century Germany and how it just feels very authentic and, and real. Um, and it's not caricatured and it's not tropey. You know, there are people that that blaspheme and there are people that are super devout and there are people that have doubts about their faith or aren't Christian at all and, and talk to you about that. And just, yeah, the world just feels very rich in a very laid back way. Um, you know, I'm failing a lot. One of the funny things about playing the game is um, I'm trying to act in a way that I think is polite, but <laughs> the I don't know what is considered polite in 15th century Germany. So <laughs> I keep like accidentally flirting with people's wives and things like that, because <laughs> I don't I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing or what I'm not supposed to be doing. Um, but the game has a really good uh, sense of humor in that regard. And um, it kind of knows that you're going to that you're going to make mistakes. And it is one of those games where failure just kind of leads to fun scenarios. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm enjoying the heck out of it. Um, I think it's I'm pretty sure it's on Game Pass. Um, I'm playing it on Steam. Um, but, yeah, if, if you do get a chance to pick it up um it's really worth it there's so many interesting things about it yeah still on the backlog for me My, uh, george you finished pentiment right yeah finished it and, and, and exactly as mike said loved it for the reason that it was so human it's the, the sense that every character in in that game that you interact with it really is a distinct defined person and the actions that they use and the decisions that you make and everything that goes into that world, it all results in very human outcomes. And sometimes those outcomes are really joyful and sometimes they're very, very messy. Uh, and I think there really isn't a game, there really isn't a, another game that I can think of, aside from maybe like some of those moments in Disco Elysium that, that really get gets close to it. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm a massive massive Benjamin fan. I'm really well sort of going to pass for for it at just about any moment. I think the I, I think the the other thing as well was just and going back to the politeness, it just reminded me of my other favorite thing about it, which is it's one of the only games which essentially gives you a series of perks by making like decisions about what your background or your past is, and allows those perks to punish you. 
where you think, aha, okay, I can use my legal background here and you use it and someone goes, oh, I don't want a lawyer's answer here. This is useless. This isn't what we want. We're talking about religion here, not the law. And you're sitting there being like, when was the, when was the last time that a game gave me a perk and then was like, nope, actually, this is going to make your experience briefly worse. So yeah, I, I think the fact that it's willing to say that, yes, those skills that you develop, they are useful, but actually the context in which you use them is is as important as, as the actual skill itself. I think, again, there aren't many games that do something as interesting as that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I also really like its its portrayal of history is it has this kind of Horrible Histories-esque uh, vibe to it. Um, Horrible Histories is like a, a book series in the UK. I don't know how widespread it is outside the UK. Probably not, I suspect. But, you know, it's aimed at kids and it, it tries to keep the gruesome bits of history in there. But it doesn't do it in a kind of unnecessary way or kind of relishing in, oh, the past sucked, you know, like some medieval hardcore games might um, it's it. What it does is, you know, it presents you with situations that it knows is going to make you uncomfortable as someone that lives in the year 2023. And it doesn't let you fix them because it's the 15th century. You can't fix them. But instead, you can sort of sit there and talk to people about them and feel the the unfortunate nature of these situations or the unhappiness. And I love that, too. It it does. It, it's it's very honest about the fact that you're not going to come here and fix everything with your 21st century view of things. Um, you the best you can do is just be there for people. Um, I love that about it. Okay, everyone need to play Pentiment, I think, before the next time we all get together, because that's... I, I'm making a note right now. <laughs> Already, I think, um, in George's episode, he'd already made like a very strong case for it, but now I'm really double convinced I need to get around to playing this. Um, speaking of Anne, while you're writing that down, you wrote yes, down sir. that you've been very busy with Switch Sports recently, which <laughs> I'm, I'm interested in this, because I, because everybody in their auntie played Wii Sports. In fact, probably mm -hmm. their auntie played it more than they did. Um, yes. But I've been sorely tempted to pick this up. It, it's it's an interesting game. Uh, so I was not planning to get it, I will admit, but it was given to me as a gift. And so I thought, why not? Let's give it a shot. And, you know, Nintendo does some things very well. And I feel like the, the sports franchises I, I guess it, i guess it's only one franchise uh it does fairly well the the thing i like about it is that it's something that i can play with my partner and we're also online at the same time so it's you know us versus randos basically but we also you know some of the some of the sports were playing cooperatively some were playing competitively uh, and there's a, a nice choice of sports. They just released in December, they released the golf. And before that, we had just been about the bowling. But the golf game adds quite a bit to it. There's a lot more choices and ways to actually use some skill, <laughs> as opposed to feeling like you're just wildly flinging your arms around, which is how I play tennis, apparently. And so... With the golf, you know, you're aiming, you're taking the wind into account, you're looking at, you you know, you actually pay attention to the green and um, I don't play golf. Now, when I go past the driving range, I'm like, oh, that's a thing that <laughs> I would do if I had any interest in playing this in real life. There are, of course, issues 
because there always are the the thing that I am I get most frustrated frustrated I can't I'm so frustrated I can't even say the word the thing I get most frustrated about is the controllers and I'm not sure if it's because you know I live somewhere where there's quite a few people around me and you know you you get on the wi-fi and there's 50 wi-fis around us that you can connect to but the controllers are really just not always super accurate <laughs> so you spend all this time like lining up your shot and get it all perfect and then you you can practice your shots and everything and then it just suddenly goes crazy and you slice even though you never had i don't know it's in some ways though it gives you something to uh like if you aren't good, you can blame the controller <laughs> and you can feel like you're better than you thought you, you know, it's like, it's not me. It's the controller. And then occasionally you'll make these amazing shots. And of course they're probably just as random as the bad ones. But the beautiful thing is that if you do a, like a really nice shot, it will give you an instant replay. <laughs> and so it's like, Ooh, it was good enough that we get this instant replay. Uh, and also the thing I love about the switch, which took me a little bit to get used to, but they have a feature in which you can take screenshots, but you can also take video. It takes a video of the last 30 seconds. So as opposed to like, oh, I'm going to do something cool. Let me take a video. It's like, oh shit, I just did something awesome. Well, now it's not captured. Well, it, you can, you just hit the button and now you've got the last 30 seconds. So you get your replays and they're about 25 seconds long so you just hit it and now you've got you know that amazing hole in one that you absolutely were 100 percent the reason that you got it that wasn't the controller it wasn't it the was controller the it controller. was you it was definitely me um the other thing that i think that they do that they do well is that you know nintendo has thought a lot about obviously family friendly but you know this is a um multiplayer game like i said there are people from all over the world that are playing with you and they do a good job of making it so you can express yourself but also not be an asshole am i allowed to say that i'm gonna say that <laughs> um we'll keep that in <laughs> just bleep that out and it'll be fine uh so you know you can't just type whatever you want they've got a sticker system which i'm pretty sure they've been using for a while but as you play, you unlock different stickers. And so you can actually customize what four stickers you have available to you. Um, you also can change your title and you unlock those. You can call yourself whatever you want, which people get fairly creative with. So <laughs> you, get a, you can see some. Uh, there are definitely people where I'm like, man, I wish I could report names, but <laughs> I get it. But I, I don't know. There's just so many ways that you can still express yourself, even with these four stickers. Uh, and, you know, I say four because that's what you have access to while you're playing a game. But, you know, I've unlocked probably 60 stickers. And so I can customize it whenever I want. And you, the reason I think we still keep playing is that every week they release new cosmetics. And so it's not only what you wear, uh, but you can get different bodies. So, like, you can be a panda bear or um a skeleton or whatever but they also release new equipment and the equipment is also cosmetic so like my volleyball is a disco ball but 
the like the golf clubs have different effects when you shoot the ball and you know when you it, for the soccer you get different effects when you get a goal so i don't know they just they've done a fairly good job it's just you know it would be nice if the controllers were maybe a little more exact look it, it's nice that they've they've invested so much time in the like you say like all these additional cosmetics and what have you because it enriches or rewards repeated engagement which was always the pro yes. like we sports was never built I think with a long-term thing in mind, it was built as a series of mini mm -hmm. games that they're like, oh, people will play this for like four hours and then they'll be happy with it. And then subsequently people were buying the console just to play this one game. And yeah. So yeah, it's kind of cool that they thought it, about that. My understanding is it was just kind of a tech demo and then people really enjoyed it and they're like, well, shit, <laughs> I guess we need to do more with this. Um, and I wish they would do more with the Switch Sports version. But I don't know. I enjoy it way more than I thought I would. So, oh, I, so it's quite interesting it. to see with Nintendo and the obviously they brought the motion controls in originally with the Wii, and then they put the the motion plus I think it was called attachment. You plug yeah. it in to make it more accurate. Um, and now we have the motion control in the Joy Cons, but at the cost that they do them, there's, they're never going to be super accurate. And right. without camera tracking, they're never going to be as good as the VR um, units. So obviously, there's a trade-off of accuracy and, and cost. Um, but and most games, <laughs> yeah, exactly, it's set up and it's, it's easy to use them. Um, but most games have to have this sort of fuzzy. I guess almost they have to work out what you're doing. If you ever play the dance games with the with the Joy-Con, it's completely almost it feels almost random sometimes whether you get, yes. get excellent or not um but without having good controllers that cost way more there's, there's never going to be some you know, the, the fidelity that you want from them yeah no that's true and for the most part nintendo does a fairly good job of you know they use that fuzziness often to your advantage which i appreciate because it's not meant to be this hardcore game and, you know, when we were bowling, we actually found that you could just bowl sitting down. With golf, I find it a lot easier to stand up. But there's, and I have tried golfing laying down. It doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you just swing in your arms. Why do I have to stand up for this? Anyway, you know, it's been a long day. Sometimes I don't want to stand up. I appreciate the the you know, the scientific <laughs> process there that you're like, hang on, what if? <laughs> oh, oh Absolutely. When you study interfaces, of course, you have to, you know, you have to ed edge test everything. So the uh, the thing that get, I think that they could use some refinement on is actually they've got all these things for when you twist your wrist. So like when you're bowling, you can actually, you know, do a spin on your ball. Uh, when you're golfing, you can slice. And that's the part where it really, I think, is maybe... It's very hard to do it on purpose and it happens accidentally more than it feels good, I think is really the problem. And also, uh, if it was I, just consistent, that would be fine. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, as someone who, who has made a fair few games with alternate controllers uh, that deal with motion, it's something that you have to uh, err on the side of making it feeling good rather than being accurate, I guess. Um, oh, but yeah, when definitely. accuracy is 
accuracy is the important part. It's like uh, uh, yeah, opposing forces there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And like I said, the accuracy is maybe not even the problem. It's just the lack of consistency that is really where it starts not feeling good. Um, yeah. Did you play the soccer mode? Of course I've played the soccer mode. Oh, you mean where I put it actually on my leg? No. Uh, no. Okay. I was <laughs> no. curious. I was curious because they added that, didn't they? Yeah, they did. And I'm like, you know what I don't want to do in my small room? Uh, <laughs> With two cats and a dog face. kicking around yeah, as well. Exactly. I can swing my arms and I don't hit anything, but kicking might be a problem. Also, speaking of dog, you can edit this part out. I'll be right back. <laughs> no, that's in. That's staying in. That's staying in. It's an honorary sixth, sixth member. A quick break from all the banter to take a moment to thank our patrons who support us here on the Branching Factor podcast. Without that support, we wouldn't have kicked off this fun new venture for us all to take part in. Don't forget that by supporting us on Patreon, you get to listen to each episode early and without all these pesky ads that break up the flow. Plus, you get bonus content and the chance to submit questions to us directly via the AI and Games Discord server and shoutouts for our top tier patrons. It's all part of the package. To find out how to join, head on over to patreon.com forward slash AI and Games that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash AI and Games. Thanks once again for listening to us here on Branching Factor. And with that, let's get back to the actual podcast. Yeah, so it's funny. I was, was scurrying through the news this week on account of, I was like, oh, what's an interesting talking point? And then two things that came up in our one-to-one with George in our first episode have reared their ugly head once again. Um, I guess the ever ongoing Microsoft Activision acquisition. I remember us talking about this back in December when we recorded together, and we were like, "Yeah, this there are going to be some grapes, but it's going to be a done deal." But it seems like it's it, there's there's been twists and turns, and now we've got was it the FTC has sued Microsoft? The CMA is now suggesting that Microsoft divest Call of Duty from the rest of their enterprise. A lot going on, George. How, what's your <laughs> Take. There is in there is indeed a government affairs correspondent George Osborne here. Um, no, I mean so. <laughs> if you're listening to this in April, which you might well be doing so, because this will be coming out after GDC, things might have moved on from here. So this is as time of recording. So sitting here towards the beginning of March, and um, you know, as Tommy was saying, there were ongoing processes looking at it before Christmas. And then the biggest things that have changed is that the three big regulators that matter in terms of global regulation, so the FTC in the US, uh, the European Commission in the EU, and the Competitions and Market Authority in the UK. Um, as we talked about a bit on the last episode, they've all been caught a bit flat-footed by big tech making lots of acquisitions and then kind of getting themselves to a position where they're quite dominant in the market. Um, so there's been pressure on them to be a bit more interventionist and as a result of that microsoft attempting to buy a major video games business for 69 billion has attracted their attention and the result of that is that essentially all three of them are now having sort of a very close look at this deal for whether or not it's actually going to go ahead so now the arguments against this deal proceeding which pretty consistent across all of the territories are that essentially their concerns about microsoft exerting their influence generally over the market because 
in terms of actual sort of cash size of the business, they're much, much bigger than practically everyone else operating in the game sector. But specifically that by buying, especially the Activision and Blizzard parts of the business, that they would use Call of Duty uh, as a way to essentially restrict access to content. So if it was only available for sort of Xbox and Microsoft platforms as a way of asserting dominance over the market and reducing access uh, for people who play games to content at a reasonable price. Um, and then at the same time, there's been questions about cloud services and about whether or not this will essentially lead to some sort of monopoly because Microsoft not only obviously have things like Game Pass, which have cloud service elements to it, but they also have the infrastructure to build and support it. Now, Microsoft side, what they've argued back is that they've said, well, we've not got any plans to do anything like that with Call of Duty in terms of exclusivity because it doesn't make any sense because as they they probably actually fairly and rightly say, the modern multiplayer game is cross-platform and you need as big a user base as possible. So restricting access to it is probably a bad idea for them. Their other argument as well is that Sony is actually the clear market leader, especially in places like uh, the EU. So the concerns about them suddenly going and knocking everyone else out of the market is a bit overblown. Um, but there are also their other thing is about saying that they're actually just willing to work with regulators to go and deal with concerns. Um, so what's happened then as a result of all of this is regulators have been looking at this and they've, they've said that they're concerned and there's essentially two things that regulators can decide to do uh, in regards to this in terms of changing the deal to allow it to go through. So one of those things is called behavioral changes. So that's about saying this deal can go through, but your business has to agree to do certain things. So you have to take certain actions and make agreements about the way you're going to behave to be able to make this happen. Then there are the structural things where they say, actually, we want you to take a bit of your business and maybe do something like sell it on. So those are the two things they can do to allow it to proceed. But then there is the additional thing they can do, which is decide to block it. Um, and that is obviously the big thing that Microsoft does not want to happen, because if any of these big three basically block it, it probably kills the deal outright. So where do we stand? So the three things are, so the FTC, as, as Tommy's mentioned, they are suing to try and block this deal. Now, most people are not expecting this to succeed. Um, I think the legal case that the FTC is pursuing, I think most people who are more familiar with law in America than I am, uh, suggest that they do not have the grounds to make those kinds of arguments. But what they're trying to do is pressure Microsoft into concessions. So that is the kind of thing that they're looking towards, and they may well withdraw the case basically from, from happening if they get some of those concessions. You then go over to EU, where things are going probably a bit better for Microsoft. There was a notification of concerns about the deal, which happened earlier this year. Uh, Microsoft then went to a behind-closed-doors hearing with a number of other games companies to go and talk to EU regulators. And as well as talking to them, they announced some licensing deals with Nintendo and NVIDIA to essentially demonstrate that this is definitely going to remain on other platforms for about 10 years and say that they're offering Sony the same. Uh, that's quite significant because you know they're essentially saying we're willing to make sure that Call of Duty is not exclusive for probably two console cycles. And if in competition terms, that's probably enough for someone to say, well, your business should be able to adapt over the course of a decade's worth of planning. So the EU looks increasingly likely that it's going to approve it uh, with, with the update sort of towards the end of February, suggesting that, that sources behind closed doors were saying they were going to approve it with those licensing deals, but also with some conditions about how the new merged company was going to behave. So their, their last major problem is essentially the UK and the CMA, because they found provisionally that it could impact players and it could harm competition. Um, 
very similar kinds of arguments. But the key thing was is that the CMA uh, looked at structural and behavioral recommendations, and they said they felt structural was the way to go. So what that meant was either splitting Call of Duty out, splitting Activision out, or splitting Activision Blizzard out of the business. Um, now, it's not 100% that they're going to go for a structural remedy. Um, you know, Microsoft is still saying that they believe that they can convince them with behavioral stuff based on the fact that the commission actually went for the deal in terms of Nintendo or NVIDIA or appears to have gone for it. But the key thing is, is that if the CMA goes through with this and mandates a structural change to the deal, essentially due to the various ways that these different authorities operate, the CMA, it is very hard to appeal um, a mandated decision from the CMA unless you can demonstrate they've done something wrong procedurally. So what that means is that if they mandate the structural side of things, the deal would not be allowed to go through in the UK without one of those things happening. And Microsoft would probably not want to do that on the basis that they don't want to split anything out. So what that means is that by the end of April, probably this is not necessarily going to be fully wrapped up, but we're going to know probably the answer to it because the EU set itself a deadline of the 25th of April to report on this. Uh, the CMA, not at all coincidentally, uh, put on the 26th of April, the Labour going to do it as well. It's almost as if basically <laughs> what, what's been happening is if, if we've been engaged in a game of regulator chicken where all of them have said, well, we all want to in, in, intervene on this but also kind of none of us want to quite go first on this. You know, we want to see what everyone else is saying. So, you know, you've got those two in April and then the FTC notionally, um, you know, things are ongoing, but August looks to be sort of more of the key date there. But they will likely change what they're doing if the commission and the CMA both decide to waive the deal through with, with, with say, behavioural changes. So that, Tommy, is basically where we're at with this. Uh, by the time that this episode comes out, there is a reasonable chance that the one or two of those things may have already happened. Uh, if they have, uh, what a glorious uh, or terrifying future we live in, depending <laughs> upon your mad console affiliation. <laughs> uh, but generally speaking, that that's, that's pretty much what's been going on there. Um, I would just say, um, having felt more confident about it before Christmas, who knows what's going to happen? Okay. <laughs> I I have a question for you, George. Yes. So I know that they're looking at this primarily from, or, or at least it sounds like they're looking at it primarily from a financial standpoint. When they're doing these sorts of um, legislature or regulations or whatever this is falls under, do they have? people there that actually are more familiar with the game side of things you know because there, i'm sure there is a lot of nuance that is lost when you just look at financials it's a, it's a really good question and, and the answer is yes they do but it, it can be the kind of differing degrees um so i think when you're kind of looking across as I understand it, in terms of the various policy circles, the CMA, for example, has quite a good reputation for having people who understand technology, which in includes obviously the game side of things. Um, I mean, the commission does as well, but I, I think especially the CMA has kind of established a reputation around, uh, you know, having expertise in there. Um, and they have that expertise in there because they need to check what people are saying so, you know, for example, one of the things about that closed door hearing that they had in the European Commission, from what I heard, one of the big things that they were checking was PlayStation's argument and Sony's argument that this would kind of potentially really sort of impact the traditional console model and impact their market leadership because um, Sony had been 
talking about that around the world quite extensively, but actually, you know, there have been discussions about whether or not that had been tested enough. And so you need to have some people who've got that kind of expertise in-house. And so what they will do is uh, they will analyze evidence, they will analyze submissions, you know, the CMA and, and uh, the commission both ask for evidence from games businesses and, uh, well, frankly, from, from wider organizations too, to help guide them. But they also make sure they have some subject matter experts to be able to say, okay, um, you know, I actually know this market pretty well. And I think maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong, but you you get that sort of sense of building in some expertise to make sure that that is not just looking through the lens of a balance sheet and making a decision mm-hmm. based on that. That's somewhat reassuring. Yes, yes. And I would say as well, I think generally speaking, government is getting better at understanding games because you have more people in government who play games. And, you know, whether or not that is specialists or just people who've played games and maybe look at someone talking about it and read a policy paper and go, that doesn't really sound like a games issue to me, or that sounds a little bit far-fetched. Um, you know, you have more people there. So, so there is that general side of things, but yeah, this is, this is essentially probably, um, I think Chris Dring of GI Biz described, um, that hearing at the European commission as the super bowl for the business news nerds (laughs) who are interested in video games. So, you know, it's a biggie, it's a biggie and we'll, we'll see what Mm -hmm. happens. And with the the rumblings that the EU looks set to approve with behavioural changes, you, know, you said there's a kind of an element of chicken here. Do you feel like if if one of them goes ahead and approves it with just behavioural changes, do you think that that then subsequently results in the CMA and, and the FTC like backing down because they want to align on that, or just like is is there a do we is there actually a chance that one of them approving it then subsequently results in them all approving it in a very similar fashion. I think there is a chance of that. There is still also a chance that someone within the organization goes in the other direction and goes, this is a bit of a hero moment for us. You know, we we can actually be the ones who make the stand here, um, which I know sounds a strange thing to say when this is meant to be a dispassionate look at competition law. Um, but again, it goes back to that sense of, you know, if you're thinking about what big tech is, Microsoft is probably like the nicest bit of big tech, but it is nevertheless part of big tech. And so there are a lot of people who I think quite rightly have looked at the influence of big tech over um, tech policy, society in general, and gone, wings may need to be clipped somewhere. And there is a reasonable argument here around competition concerns that would allow someone to choose to do that if they wanted to. But there is that flip side saying, well, you know, I mean, the UK being the sort of the key example here, which is like, on the one hand, uh, rejecting it um, could be a good way of sort of showing uh, we're the UK, we're doing our own thing. But then on the other hand, one of the consistent concerns for tech businesses is around this sense of we're now too distant from what's going on in Europe. And, if we're too distant, that actually disadvantages us. So, you know, the answer is could go both ways, but it is not necessarily unsurprising if one of them goes for behavioural recommendations if the rest of them just back down. See, the Tories have got to be careful as well because then they might lose the Call of Duty vote and they've got they've already right. got a tough election up ahead of them. Well, well exactly. But yes, it's a... It's it's also just, you know, in terms of regulators like jostling for position and being like, you know, we are the most important regulator in the world. You know, we're the backstop. There is that sense that, you know, a, a regulator could see itself in that kind of light. And I think the FTC has 
had a bit of a track record for trying to be like that for the last few years. Um, but yes, it is a it, it remains a can of worms that has been opened and poured all over the table. Lovely stuff. Lovely stuff. George, I'm conscious we're going to have to love you and leave you at this point. You've got other places to be. But uh, thank you so much for being here with us. And also thank you so much for delivering what I thought was a fairly good summation of the situation. This is I could have saved myself a lot of time reading gamesindustry.biz over the last couple of weeks <laughs> if I just waited for this. But um, no, thank you so much. And we'll hopefully see you again very soon. I'll there hopefully try and Thank you very much for having me along. And uh, yeah, thank you for getting me out before we talked about loot boxes. Oh, that's a relief, isn't it? There we go. <laughs> Next there up, we let's are. talk. <laughs> Next up, let's talk about loot boxes. But anyway, goodbye for now. And uh, thanks very much for having me along. Bye, George. See you later, sir. Mike, do you want to take a story? Give us a, take a story. Take any story you like. Do I? I don't know. Um, uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if we want to go super in depth with it. Um, I guess, I guess I'll, I'll pick up about um, some of the moves around AI uh, legislation. Um, so something fairly significant, maybe this year, uh, this this week, um, is that Paizo, who are the who are the designers of the Pathfinder tabletop RPG system. Um, said that they're not going to use AI art in their campaign books um, and related things that they sell. Now, um, this is this is coming off the back of Wired making a similar policy saying that they wouldn't use AI-generated articles or stock photography. Um, it's it's a it's kind of complicated. So on the one hand, some people saw this as a as a good move. Lots of artists were worried about them being put out of work. And um, one of the interesting things with tabletop role-playing games and fantasy style is that that's a style that has been very popular with people using these text-to-image <clears throat> uh, uh, AI systems. Um, it is a, a bit more complicated here because um, Paizo apparently has a reputation for not paying their artists very well. So it's one thing to say what? that we're going to keep using human artists, um, but of course it's not just enough to keep them employed on a terrible wage. Um, that said, I think it's interesting that these companies are beginning to see this as um, something that they can get a PR win out of posting. I think that's an interesting development. Um, now, I know for a fact that there are a lot of indie studios, um, even some maybe what we might call double A game studios, using AI uh, image generators as like concept art systems right now and things like that. Um, and I also know that there are a lot of artists working inside game studios who are worried about the proliferation of uh, AI art um, and worried that parts of their job that they like or that they think gives them value, you know, that give me, uh, they, where they can make a contribution, they're worried that those parts of their job might disappear. And we're still a ways off um, kind of game studios making big statements. I imagine GDC this month will have a lot of talks on this topic. Um, but um, yeah, it's it's the beginning of, of an interesting time. I think we're going to see more of these declarations probably in in the coming weeks and months. No one really knows where it's going to end up. Uh, these companies might regret posting these policies. They might you know they might feel they have to backtrack on them in a year's time. But but for now, that's where we are. I th I thought it was interesting. I read some the statement that Paizo had put on their blog and one of the the, the lines here was um, to quote uh, Paizo will add new language add new language to its creative contracts that will stipulate that all work submitted to us for publication be created by a human we will further add guidance to our Pathfinder and Starfinder infinite program FAQs clarifying that AI generated content is not permitted on either community content marketplace 
the first thought that came to my head was how far down the like at what point is something still considered created by a human at what point that was that's the problem so the thing that i always find interesting about you know these companies that have gone you know no ai art is that of course we've been using ai art for decades it's often called photoshop um and right? it's used <laughs> all over the place right so you know i I'm old enough that I remember when things first came, you know, when Photoshop first started gaining traction, there was a lot of people who are like, oh, no Photoshopped images. And now it's just a given that things will be Photoshopped. Like we don't want your unphotoshopped images because they're going to be worse. <laughs> um, I'm sure that's not true everywhere. Caveat, caveat. But I have a feeling that that's kind of where this will end up going because AI, the Things are always getting better, but there's still there's still things that, of course, it doesn't do well. Um, and as people gain literacy in AI art, you're going to be able to tell when things have been created by a you know by one of these programs. And it's just like now, it's a lot easier to tell when something has been photoshopped. Obviously, there are people who are much better at it. But again, that's a human skill. It's going to be the same with these. I, that's my feel. That's my hot take. And you can at me, but I'm never really on Twitter. So I won't know All about this. the hot takes. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Sorry, mate. Go the, ahead. The, the quote that you pulled out. So so there's, there's kind of two sides to this, right? There's the side that Anne mentioned about the kind of cultural acceptance. The quote that you pulled out, Tommy, though, is also interesting because the community content marketplace, I think that speaks also to these companies not really being sure what way the wind is going to blow, legally speaking. So there yeah. are companies yes. that are currently being sued um, about whether GitHub Copilot has just wholesale stolen code off people. Um, and if you know, if Paizo's taken a cut of some AI generated art, and then it turns out, no, 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 this mm. was actually yeah. uh, not legal. You know, they could be opening themselves up for all sorts of problems. So I think the the marketplace line is particularly interesting because I think it does speak to the. The fact that it's really legally like unclear what the status of any of these things are right now. Uh, right. Now, to be clear, I, I do want to... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Kwong. Kwong, um, it, it goes back to what George was saying uh, on how um, legislation is always behind tech. Mm -hmm. Tech's moving yeah. forward so quickly that the, the legislation has no idea what's going on. And so we have to hedge our, bet, our bets and see which way that will go. And as you say, whether it'll be, be getting sued or not, it's, it's who knows. Yeah. 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 The first time I saw something created, I think with Midjourney, my very first thought was, oh, well, IP law is going to be changing. And to be clear, I do think that using people's artwork without their consent, I think that is problematic. And so for those of you who are currently sending me hate tweets. I did want to make that clear. <laughs> sure, I'll no. delete it. Sorry, Anne. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I won't block you then. I, this is something I'm slowly working on over on my YouTube side. I'm actually working on like a long form video on exactly this topic. But one of the things I'm really keen to do is get the voice of the community a little bit more and get their opinion on it. Because we are in this space of tools that can facilitate and enable so much that mm -hmm. are secretly AI and have been AI for a long time and you just didn't know it versus this more 
disruptive phase that we're going into, which is quite often the same as a lot of other research we see where, and I say this with full respect to all the dude tech bros that I already know, but a bunch of dude tech bros come up with some technology and go, we're going to renovate, we're going to completely, you know, revolutionise this space. And we're going, no, you're fucking not because you don't really know what you're talking about. And then we end up going through this very gradual process of then these ideas begin to percolate in a more meaningful, practical, pragmatic way. Nowadays, because it's all coming from these big corporations, the 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 dude bro bellowing is a little louder and it's a little bit inescapable. Um, you know, how many people have been talking about chat GPT for the last month? Um, you know, it, it, so those things are becoming louder and then it muddies the conversation. But yeah, I think both of you are right in the sense that we have an issue with the technology and how you define the tech. And then subsequently also these legal ramifications of, yeah, we maybe don't want to use AI generated content from the community because we're going to get ourselves in a tremendous amount of hot water right now. Ooh. Yeah. And I think that, you know, as these things become more mainstream, we're seeing a lot of, I, I feel like I'm seeing this already where a lot of people, when they first come into AI art, they tend to generate stuff that looks kind of the same. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it, it's gotten to the point where it's like, oh, I can tell that's made with Midjourney. I is can that, tell that's made with Stable Diffusion. Is that like the yeah basic of generative art? <laughs> Uh, yeah, basically. So I, I'm sorry, but it's true. It's like, you know, first time people use Photoshop, there's certain things that people generally do. And so I think when that, like, at some point, we're going to just kind of hit some critical mass of that stuff. And it's just not interesting. And we're already seeing that, like, it used to be people were making money off NFTs of AI, some of this AI art. But now you have to you have to stand out from that. And so you're getting the people who are putting in the extra work, they're making it theirs, they're finding their own style. And so it's it's already kind of, I feel like, I, I don't know, I don't want to say self-regulating, but it's getting to the point where, you know, it's going to require that human effort again to make it even stand out and people to notice. And so, you know, we're going to get to some stasis. Granted, it changes so fast that that is currently moving a little bit faster, staying just ahead. <laughs> but, um, I think, you know, we have this thing where as tools come, come along, not, not, not just AI tools, but all tools, um, it allows more and more people to do things. Obviously, we have yes. things like um, Unity and, and Unreal making it easier to make games. Uh, um, so more people making games, but then we're getting more rubbish games. Uh, yes. asset flips and things like that and 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 i say if you want to stand out you have to put the extra work in you have to do more than the tool allows you to do easily so you exactly. have to you, you have to stand out and um will come to the point with ai um ai generated art that unless you do something with it and take it to the next step it's just the same old same old right like the yeah, this kind of like the as a generative artist, it's it, you know you're now it's like another sub discipline within games. Oh, I'm a generative artist, but I use I create generative art for specific purposes within context of a production pipeline, which I think that's that's probably the end goal because it's then you're 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 supporting a person to be creative rather than trying to replace the person in being creative. Exactly. 
Um, exactly. That's where and we. I that's where the, we need to go. <laughs> well, and I think it's the way that it will, will naturally go because, you know, the thing I've found doing AI based tools for so long is that people don't want the AI tools that do the fun part for them. They want the AI tools that do the boring part. And so, you know, I, I don't remember if I mentioned this <laughs> or not in our episode, but like, that's why speed tree is used everywhere. You know, every game you've probably ever played with trees in it, but, and I, you know, I think that's where AI art will go is that we're going to start using it to do the boring parts, but the more interesting things are going to continue being, you know, really human led and human made. So if you need to create a, a you know, a hundred NPCs, you might use AI art to kind of get you started and then finish it up. But for the main character, I don't know that you'd want to use AI art. <laughs> well, moving into another story, particularly around hot technology topics uh, and staying ahead of the of the discourse. Doctor Disrespect, the I he's not a PhD. Let's just get it out of the way. Three of us Finally, in, someone says it. Thanks. Somebody says it. You know, we've got a lot of PhDs in this call. Doctor Disrespect is not worth Herschel um Beam. I'm gonna to refer to her to his his actual name for the rest of this news story. Herschel Beam, who is currently developing PvP shooter Dead Drop. He is of course a very famous uh Twitch streamer. Or is he even on Twitch anymore? I don't know. Um, he was, but ex-game designer who then became famous for being a bit of a professional asshat who then ended up going into game development has decided to double down um, by advocating for NFT loot um, at a point where I thought NFTs were dead, at a point where I thought we'd moved on from this conversation. Um, the quote from the, the, the headline of the story was NFTs aren't dead yet. Dr. Disrespect is excited. For, sorry, Herschel is excited for 100,000 blockchain items, $100,000 blockchain items. So essentially the idea that you play like Call of Duty, um, the DMZ or Escape from Tarkov style gameplay where you're going in to capture, to get a bunch of items, to get a bunch of loot and come out with it. But the idea is that these are NFTs. And so you're going to add, it's advocating for this idea of loot that you extract from the game that is then a digital collectible and it has value. Um, so Mr. Disrespect uh, has been <laughs> a very strong advocate of this at a time where I think the most sensible of people have, have moved have moved on from this. I thought NFTs were dead. I didn't think we were still doing this anymore. As far as I understand it, um, if you're in the NFT sphere, um, to make money in NFTs, you have uh, you have to convince other people that they're worth something. So you have to double down. You have to get other people on board so you can make money. Mr. Quang, that sounds like a grift. <laughs> well, um, I believe it's kind of this shaped. For our audio of, listeners, of, of, like a, a, a triangle shape, yes, mm. yeah, kind of triangle-ish. Um, I believe that's the kind of shape that that the grift is. Indeed, it, it is weird because I, I thought it had fully died out as well. Like I don't know who this is appealing to. Uh, well, it's appealing to investors, presumably. I mean, I, I don't know. Like. I, it's it, obviously NFTs are still being used elsewhere. It, the movement hasn't like died completely, I don't think. But like in games, it felt that like there was very strong pushback against it. 
also because it's not a very interesting idea like this thing he's proposing i mean i think we're all old enough to remember the stories from eve online for example when very valuable things were destroyed it didn't require any complex technology it just required a community in time and and if anything that was a better way of doing it because it had a lot more meaning associated with it like I always find it funny when people talk about particularly the idea of, oh, well, this could be a really valuable item because then it could appear in another game. And so <laughs> two things that come up. One, I don't know if I'm that invested in a game that I really want that really bad skin that I got in that version of that shooter seven years ago to then use in another shooter seven years later. I'm, I'm kind of past that point. Secondly, like Steam's been doing this for like over a decade with the marketplace. Like everything that I, the, every time I hear NFT ad, you know, advocacy of NFTs around, oh, you can transfer between games. I'm like, I give you the Steam marketplace. Look, I can buy a hat that came out in Team Fortress 2 in 2011 for three pence. It was $3,000 eight years ago and it's three pence now, but I can buy it and put it on my hat and my character. And that's great. And what are you offering that is more than that? But what if you own the hat? I'm like, I do own the hat. I've got it. I bought it off the Steam Marketplace. I, d I don't get it. I don't get it. And it also, I saw a comment when I read this story, which made me laugh really hard. Was like, I've never seen, I've never seen a game be declared dead before. We've even seen a screenshot of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was going to say that. I think the market will make it clear. Um, their feelings about this. Hmm. Even you know, even it's, it's sorry, like Mike, it's easy to make a PvP shooter as is today. Like it's such a competitive mm -hmm. market. Like why would you, you know, make it even harder for yourself by doing this? I don't know. Yeah. Because I guess people will believe that they can make money in it some way. If people believe they can make money, they'll jump on board. You get more money, they get more money. Everybody gets more money. Sounds great, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, that does sound great, actually, Crown. When you put it that way. <laughs> Everyone gets more money. Like, I love that idea. <laughs> That's great. It's great when money is not a zero-sum game. <laughs> uh, capitalism. Uh, even, even like, um, what was it? There was Ubisoft was doing NFTs, and that's quietly disappeared. They, they released a pair of pants and, like, a hat or something. Um, in Ghost Re <laughs> they also released it, it, was, it. You could tell that they weren't really committed to it because they also released it on like the one game that they've released in recent memory that nobody played or liked, um, which was uh, Ghost what, Recon. Was oh, what was it? What's that one called? It's not. It's it's not Wildlands. Wildlands was good. Oh, I'm gonna have this. I don't know, but um, I was wondering—is it pants as a hat? No, oh, but that would have been a much better idea. Ghost Recon Breakpoint, that was it, sorry. <clears throat> is it is it US pants or UK pants? I, <laughs> That's my um, question. I think I said that in the context of US pants. Okay. okay. Although I think it would have been better if it was UK pants. <laughs> UK as a pants, hat. always better. Or just... <laughs> UK pants as a hat. There is the name of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to um, say I think Square probably... Enix is still quite deep into it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Square Enix yeah. came out recently and were. They're like, yep, NFTs, we're all about it. You know, meanwhile, they yeah. can't seem to keep a live service game open for longer than 12 minutes before they shut it down. Um, I think Square Enix have now shut down more games this year than they plan to sell this year. Like, <laughs> like or they've even Damn, announced. Yeah, with the hot takes. 
Long well, they, they did. Like... Fantasy fourteen going, it's fine. They can do whatever they want. Yeah. I, it's been interesting yeah. watching them kind of divulge all the other parts of their portfolio because it's like, apart from Final Fantasy, we don't really know what we're doing, so we're going to sell everything else off. <laughs> Tomb Raider, we don't need it. Crystal Dynamics, yeah, we'll get rid of them. I, Idos, yeah, sure, we'll, we don't need that. Give it over to the um, sell it off elsewhere, but we really need Final Fantasy 14, 15, and 16 to fuel our Chocobo GP game that we're shutting down. Um, anyway. Hot take. Square Enix has been bad at business for about a dozen years, which is not news to anyone. Um, read, uh, I always love this. If, uh, if you ever, I'm, I'm on the verge of going on a rant, but I'm going to stop myself. But if you ever look at any of their like end of year fiscal or their quarterly fiscal reports, and it's like a Western game, they go, "We expected this to sell to make more money than God. It didn't. Therefore, it has went below expectations." How many copies of that Tomb Raider game? We sold six million. What was your estimate? Twenty. Look, who were you going to get it to? Like, who did you expect was going to buy this? Like, every person in the UK, it's like, oh yeah, Lara Croft's British, we're all going to go and buy a copy of Tomb Raider, one in a household. Like, they're mad. They're mad. Anyway, moving on. We did we did have another story about um, loot boxes, which George isn't with us in, um, at the moment, but uh, funnily enough, a big part of our story, our conversation with George was about the difficulty in defining whether or not a loot box is considered um, gambling and therefore falls under gambling regulations and also particularly across the EU. They've been softening on this, but Austria just declared FIFA Ultimate Team is gambling. Um which, a quote from Video Games Chronicle, according to the court, due to the contents of FIFA's loot boxes having the possibility of being worth more or less monetary, monetarily than the value of the pack itself, thus theoretically offering a financial benefit to those lucky enough to receive a valuable item, they therefore violate the Austrian Gaming Act. Which, it's a fair argument. Agreed. In there we go. We, we we side with the Austrian Gaming Act. <laughs> with the side with the Austrian Gaming Act. Um, yeah, I'm 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 still wondering whether they're even going to continue with FIFA Ultimate Team in its current form because, like, what FIFA changes this year as well. We're getting. I was going to say, do you guys know about this? So FIFA, so FIFA and EA have fell out. So they're no longer FIFA 23 oh, was shit. the last FIFA. <laughs> Um, this year it's called uh, big news, huge news. Uh, how, yeah, it's called uh, yeah, something weird now, right? It's like called football or something. EA, I think it's like EA Sports FC 24, I think, is, is, is what it's called. Yeah, EA Sports FC, that's what they're going to call the new one. Um, and but also FIFA apparently have hired a studio to now go and make a FIFA game because they're going to miss out on their money otherwise. But, uh, well, they should talk to Microsoft, Microsoft, Activision, Blizzard. <laughs> I hear that's the the other game in town. <laughs> oh my god, Activision! I'm just, brings I'm just you... trying to loop it around. <clears throat> that would that would be hilarious. Like you know, sort of <laughs> Activision takes over making FIFA. Um, <laughs> it's got a battle pass in it now. <laughs> oh god. Now you can get like I don't know rainbow uh, boots for your for your player, or like they have a different custom emote for when they. You know what? I'm actually just inventing something that does actually I mean, sound pretty good now that I'm saying it out loud. Call me. We can we can make this work. Um, 
But yeah, I think that's the last. Oh, dog. Sorry, dog. For our audio listeners, that doesn't make any sense, but <laughs> random dog is walked by. Um, but yeah, I think that was our last story. The only other thing was we, I noticed Paradox had made a bunch of announcements this week. I don't know if there's any Crusader Kings players here or anyone dig, dig into Europa Universalis. My friends are very excited about the Crusader Kings 3. They said the the, the new DLC, uh, Tours and Tournaments, I think it's called. They said that that sounds like it's going to be really good. I think CK3's had a great launch. It's kept doing well. They they seem to be very happy with all the stuff they're adding. Um, so, uh, And I'm excited for, um, is it uh, Hairbrain's latest game as well? Like That, that sounds really exciting. Was that uh, Lamplighter's League? Lamplighter's yeah. League, yeah. That yeah, sounds... so they're finally getting some original IP. Um, so we're going to see what they do with what, that. What but, did they uh, work on previously? So they made the... Um, uh, they've worked on Shadowrun, I believe, and they did... Oh. Um, what's the mech franchise that I'm blanking on now? They did a mech... <laughs> there was a mech franchise. <laughs> Battle... Battletech? I'm just, I'm just saying words. That sounds, that sounds Tommy right. will edit this in. He'll deepfake my voice saying the correct name of the game. Um, yeah, it was a good game. Um, but I'm I'm excited for them to to do something with their own kind of thing. They made some great games, um, so high hopes. Yes, BattleTech can confirmed. Excellent. There we Fantastic. go. Fantastic. Um, I I shout out to my friend Mike, who not not yourself, Mike, but Thanks my time. other my other friend also called Mike. But shout out to you too, um, who has been nagging me for years to make a Crusader Kings AI in games episode. I don't have anything uh... to go on, but um, I know it's it's beloved. I'm actually excited. They also announced City Skylines two. Yes. For 2023, which I didn't realize that the original City Skylines is now eight years old. Yeah. And yeah. I'm excited for the. I've never got into City Skylines as much as I would like. As I've, I've, it's, it's a lot of fun, but I've never, it's never really hooked me as much as I want. I don't know what it is. I can't, it's something that I just can't stick with it for a long period. I think I'm, I'm, I struggle with trying to figure out how to sustain and maintain my cities. I get them to a certain size and then it just turns into a dystopia in about a fortnight. I think that's, yeah, maybe, maybe they can help me out. All right, tell you what, how about we take a quick break and then we've actually got, we'll wrap up because we've got some correspondence from our audience that we will need to go through as well. How does that sound, kids? Love it. I say that I'm almost the youngest one here. All right. <laughs> we'll be back in a second. Woohoo! You know, if you're like me and you enjoy making your video games, or even if you're just starting out, the most soul-destroying aspect of it is making sure you've not got any bugs in there. Ugh, oh, it's the worst. You're playing away, showcasing the latest version to your friends, or heaven forbid, someone who's actually going to throw you some money to play it themselves, only for some horrid jank to kick in. Your little platforming character gets caught in the geometry, or your first-person shooter has enemies that walk through walls, or for some reason your puzzle game doesn't recognise that you solved the puzzle. Ugh, oh, it's awful, so stressful, and it just really beats you down at times. And that leads me to our sponsors here at the Branching Factor podcast, Model AI. Model AI is all about using artificial intelligence as a means to change how we develop games, and more importantly for us, how we test them. Powered by the latest innovations in AI research, Model AI's exploratory test bots can be told what issues to look out for in your game and will then head out and test every nook and cranny and report it back to you with logs and videos. 
Model AI's tools plug into your favourite game engines and you can have a simple testing bot running with just a few clicks. Sure, you might feel a little sad that this poor wee AI critter is having to run into every single wall to make sure you can't clip through it, but hey, just imagine it could be you doing that for hours on end every week. To find out more, head on over to Model AI, that's M-O-D-L dot AI, to see their tools in action. And we'd like to thank Model AI for sponsoring us here on the Branching Factor podcast. You missed yeah. our idea of NFTs in <laughs> loot boxes, Tommy. All right. Well, we're going to come back right now. We'll, we'll, we'll just This is us returning back to Branching Factor episode five. Anne has got a wonderful idea for loot boxes and NFTs. Loot boxes with NFTs. Oh, NFTs sorry. in loot boxes. Oh, so it's an NFT box. I mean, it's a loot box with which it contains NFTs. Oh, so what about if the loot box was the NFT? Why not both? Working on loves us. A receipt Let's with receipts. <laughs> a receipt printer. NFT loot box that has NFTs inside. <clears throat> yeah. Sounds yes. Perfect. I'm sure we can make it work. Reach out to us at branchingfactor at aiandgames.com <laughs> with your requests for how to break this a reality. Also, if you've just got emails you want to send us, by all means, we'll also take them on board as well. How's that for a segue? I was quite pleased with that right there. That was really good. <laughs> this is this is going to be the episode where we get all of the hate mail. I'm looking forward to it. So yes, once again, for your hate mail, branchingfactor at aiandgames.com. Unless, of course, you're one of our wonderful patrons, in which case then you can just reach out directly to us in the audience questions part of your the Discord mail. server with your hate messages. We'll set up a little with feed your, for you. Your rage questions. With your rage. Uh, yes, please direct your rage to us at patreon.com forward slash aiandgames. Um, all right. So first of all, we have an email uh, from Jean. John, who says, hello, Dr. Tommy. And of course, I'm assuming everybody else. You invited questions for the podcast. I did. So the question is, in two slash five slash 10 years, when AI tooling is more ingrained in game dev, what will be those uniquely human qualities that will benefit slash differentiate someone in the studio? My own take, being able to dream slash ideate and design for a specific outcome. Kind regards, John. So this is kind of tying in a little bit to what we were just saying about you know, earlier in the episode about the in, the integration of AI technology and like being a generative artist specialist within the studio. I don't know. And I feel like you're maybe more qualified than me to comment on this particular question. Oh, good God. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, it's a really good question. So I think, Oh God, how do I, how do I word this? So I think there's going to be a number of things, obviously. Um, I feel like good narrative is going to, you know, we've got chat GPT and it can nail most of the narrative tropes, but a lot of games that are pushing beyond those tropes, you know, chat GPT and other machine learning systems aren't going to be able to necessarily make those sorts of things because you know it's working from what it knows whereas a lot of when you're pushing against the norms you know you're doing a lot of flipping and subverting and ai is just not 
super great at that yet. Um, I'm not sure it will be. <laughs> and then I think also uh, basically anything experimental is often going to be, you know, as humans, we, we are really good at pattern matching and thinking about things that are, you know, looking at things that may not be similar on the, you know, at first blush, that is a terrible term that I need to not ever use again. Anyway, at first glance, uh, they look, they look very disparate, but once you start looking into it more, you get to know it more, you start finding these similarities and those leaps of logic and intuition are things that AI is just currently not good at. And I don't think it will be in two, five, 10 years. Um, but we're going to have some beautiful trees. <laughs> I, I, I like your comment about particularly around narrative and the notion of subverting narrative, because mm -hmm. in order to do that, you're often typically in a lot of games, even there, you're establishing tropes, you're establishing common concepts, and then you're, you're creating this framework with such that you can then subvert it. Um, right. Yeah. You have, you have to know the norms to break it. And so, you know, part of the problem with ML is that, or machine learning is that it doesn't actually know the things it's yes. just modeling. It's just pattern matching basically. And so because it doesn't know those norms, it can't break them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like, sorry, Quang, go ahead. Um, but obviously in, I don't know, two, five, 10 years, as, as John was asking, is that something they could learn? Because as, as, as humans, we pattern match as well. And if that's mm -hmm. what AI is doing, at some point, does it learn to subvert and change 10 years down the line? Who knows? Um, I think at the moment, we're very much in this sort of uncanny valley sort of place where you, it looks good, but if you look at it, it just seems off. And we right. can detect that as humans. But in 10 years time, who knows? I mean, this is true, yeah. but I'm, go ahead. I was going to say, funnily enough, like I, I point a point that I now make to a lot of people who reach out. I've been chatting with people recently about ChatGPT and going, hey, can we use this in our company? And I'm going, no, you really you can, but I wouldn't advise it. Um, and it's like, uh, I think one of the big turning points is for these systems to become cognitive and reflective. So a lot, as we're saying, this is all pattern matching. And at the end of the day, um, things like ChatGPT doesn't, they're not cognitive systems. They don't understand what they write. They don't fact check what they write. They, I, 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 I use this description and I now use it everywhere else it comes up. That generative AI is fiction. It's just fiction that's inspired by reality. It's never guaranteed to align with it though. So mm -hmm. you can't guarantee anything. If I, I wouldn't trust a, a generative AI, generative text system. I wouldn't just trust anything it says to me. But it can give me a nice, I think we were talking earlier about creating blueprints from which to build from. Like, oh, give me, can you write me up something here that I can then use as a starting point for my own creativity? Right. I think that's a really useful point. But critically, I think for a lot of writing systems and that ilk, it needs to be able to understand the thing that it's making and why it is appropriate for the task that it has been given, or maybe it's inappropriate or appropriate for a context that it is being used. So if you're writing a certain type of character, maybe it's okay for it to use inappropriate terminology to be a bit racist because that is in the confines of the fiction and an aspect of that character. But 
in any other case, we would not ask for that to be the case because that is just not how people behave. That is not how people perform. But we're asking it to embrace this element as part of a creative pursuit. Probably not the best example to pick that particular thing, but... Well, you bring up a good point, though, Tommy, because a lot of, you know, these systems are built on these large data sets. And those data sets, of course, shape what it can make. And so, you know, some of the things that we we look at in the academic side is that what's missing from those data sets and who is missing from those data sets. And so, you know, it's very good. ChatGPT is very good at making the things that um, generally Caucasian uh, (laughs) males are, you know, just that is the sort of thing that it's very good at making because that's the data it's built on. But once you start looking at other cultures, um, it it really starts breaking apart. And so that also, I think, is going to help things stand out because that hasn't been fixed in the last, I don't know, however many years. And I don't think we're going to solve that Never. problem in the next 10. So <laughs> until, you know, people start funding that sort of work. And so I think that's that is definitely one way that that human touch will be able to stand out is I think as you said both in the kind of that factualness and being built on real experiences as opposed to these sort of hodgepodge scrap box scrap booked versions. Yeah, funnily enough, I think it it lacks truth. Yeah. That, that's it. It lacks truth of, 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 of the authenticity of the author. I think that yes. is, and that's it's a very short way to declare a much more nuanced thing. But that's mm-hmm. that's that's how I'm selling it from here onwards. I like it. So uh, again, it's, it's with its uncanniness at the moment, and if it's learning from itself, it will just get more and more uncanny because it's not, yes. it doesn't understand that it's wrong. Um, very much in the same way, uh, at the moment, uh, the the AI art has a problem with fingers, and it's always too yes. many fingers, and it's learning or too humans few, yeah. fingers, yeah, too few. Um, so it just learns from itself and adds more fingers or reduces more fingers, and it's it's just not learning good things. But um, it doesn't know that's right or wrong. It's just learning from its data sets, and if its data sets aren't mm-hmm. wide enough or good enough, then yeah, you get this problem. Yeah, it's using its data set to evaluate what it's making. And so whatever is missing from that data set or whatever is um, biased in that data set, that's what it's going to produce. Hmm. Mike, have you got any thoughts on this? You've been very deep in oh, no, it's It's great listening to other people's perspectives. Um, I think just one other thing I'd add is that in terms of like what will be important if you work in a studio, um, I think probably our ability to work with other people, especially people with different skill sets to ours, will become even more important because everyone will start you know, working probably in smaller teams, probably across different domains all at once. And so our ability to like communicate with each other and and actually you know do the human parts of the job will probably become more important i, I would guess um even if mm-hmm. those there are fewer jobs around maybe in some studios um the ones that remain will be very much about your your human co-workers as much as your ai ones i, I would guess oh, yeah, saw, not... i'll have lots I... of videos to make trying to explain all this i guess so that's <laughs> me still in business 
<laughs> I'm just not convinced that it's going to actually require fewer people. Yeah, I think it will let people go further. And as we go further, the expectations will rise. And so you'll just continue to need as many people. But I'm a little bit idealistic sometimes. So optimistic. Except when I read Twitter. <laughs> That's right. Don't forget, send us out your, your hot takes and your angry messages. Um, branching factor at AIngames.com. Oh, my Lord. I'm directing them away from you. It's okay. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so next email, our second email uh, we got from Scott from Minneapolis in Minnesota. It's nice. He actually told us where he's from. That's cute. Hey, Branching Factor. We're seeing more and more remakes come out on PC and consoles of late. While horror games seem to dominate with Resident Evil 2, 3, 4, Dead Space and the upcoming Silent Hill 2. There's stuff like Final Fantasy 7 and even recent remasters like Metroid Prime that go out their way to rebuild the experience for modern platforms. Do you all have a particular franchise or individual title you'd like to see revisited to adopt more contemporary gaming conventions? Me personally, I'd like to see a return to some of the old bullfrog games like Syndicate, yeah. Black and White and Dungeon Keeper, but without the monetization this time. Thanks for reading, and I look forward to more podcasts. Scott. Yeah, Dungeon Thanks, Keeper without Scott. the monetization. I, I just think it's funny that more contemporary gaming conventions, but without the monetization. <laughs> how, does, how does that work? Oh, sorry. <clears throat> After just saying that I'm idealistic, and then I throw that out there. <laughs> I mean, you worked in AAA. You, you, you know, the cynicism <laughs> is, is hard to shake off. It's true. <laughs> I think for me, it's probably Deus Ex. Uh, I was mm. felt very fortunate to get Human Revolution and, and Mankind Divided, which I, I liked very much. And I never thought I would see that done so well. But they, the franchise has gone to sleep again. So um, I'd love to see it come back. And I could see a give give Deus Ex to Arcane um, and ask them like modern Arcane to remake the original Deus Ex. I think that'd be a pretty kick-ass remaster. Um, mm. Um, I, as someone who makes games for older systems, um, <laughs> I'm very much a fan of pixel art and stuff. But generally, with these remakes, the 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 the, the early 3D games, which look terrible, and can do with a visual overhaul. Um, but you earlier we touched upon Link's Awakening, and obviously they took a, a 2D game and made it 3D, mm. and it was a wonderful way of doing it. They had a one wonderful tilt shift sort of viewpoint, so everything looks like a toy. Um, and I think that's a possibility we can look at making more two games, but in three D, because um, there's a, obviously a huge jump there. I, for me, for me, pixel art is, is timeless, uh, but we're having the younger generation now looking at pixel art and not necessarily understanding it mm. um, as a style. Um, they prefer, I guess, they prefer the polygons because that's what they're used to. Um, so. If we can give them the gameplay from the old 2D games in a polygon style, then maybe that will help widen that audience there. Yeah, funnily enough, looking at that list, a lot of them are PlayStation and PlayStation 2 era games. <laughs> which I was going to yeah. say, like, I've hit an age now where, like, I don't need to worry about this question in a way because <laughs> I'm, I'm at the age now where everyone just wants to remake things from my childhood for my benefit. So, like, yeah, Final <laughs> Fantasy VII and Resident Evil 2, go for it. Like, I can just sit and wait. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say that the thing I most wanted to be remade uh, got remade a few years ago, which is Pokemon Snap. So, uh, uh, but the the thing that hasn't been remade is like even Secret of Monkey Island got remade, but 
Um, the older Sierra games, I'm not, they would have to be rehauled pretty much uh, quite extensively just because I don't think the things that they did would stand up to current norms, <laughs> but, um, the, those are the games that haven't been touched that I think might be interesting to remake. Oh, you just got me thinking there about, I'm going to see if I can find it. Um, so I one of the things I did I did think was interesting about this question is I've played quite a few of these. So I've played the remake of Resident Evil 2 and 3 and I, I'm currently playing the remake of Dead Space. And I, I like that these are opportunities to take an existing game and did this work? Does this... Actually, one of the things that's interesting about the Dead Space remake is it is incredibly faithful. Um, it does... It feels like you're playing that game all over again. And which I think is a true testimony to the team at EA uh, Motive who made it, that it feels like I'm playing the original Dead Space, having played the original as well. And it's been so nice to revisit that game with all these really subtle flourishes that come with it running on contemporary hardware and just improvements in overall game design that we've learned, oh, maybe we don't do things like this. Um, Whereas Resident Evil 2 and 3 are completely different. Like, they are, in many respects, a remake, but in terms of, not just in terms of its graphics, in terms of its structure, its layout, everything about it is, oh yes, I'm replaying the story of Resident Evil 2, which is already a bit of a stretch. Like, the Resident Evil game narrative is... But it is a it is a reimagining of that idea, and I really enjoyed that. I'm, I'm keen to play Final Fantasy VII Remake, actually, as someone who never played the original. I last Final Fa- I'm playing Final Fantasy XV at the moment, but prior to that, the last one I played was four, Which ages me a little. The remake of Seven, I don't know if anyone else here has played it. Um, it's interesting because it is very much a reflection on what it means to remake a game. Um, they've changed the narrative slightly. I, and I heard, part yeah. Of that is, yeah, I mean, I, I won't spoil it, obviously, but the things they've done are fascinating. And, and I think it's like a unique case, at least as far as I can see, among quote-unquote remakes to actually think about what it, what it means to do that. Um, I really enjoyed it. But yeah, I feel like with these remakes, it's it's worth being a bit more adventurous and mm. and trying push. Like I'm interested to see if they do a remake of Dead Space two and three, mm. and they particularly three because Dead Space three is not a great game. Um, <laughs> let's let's just throw it out there because Dead Space three is an action game that is trying to trying to pretend it's it's a survival horror game and it doesn't it it didn't hold me. I'd like and it's also funnily enough. Scott's comment laced with microtransactions um, I'd be interested to see if they go back and revisit that and go what parts of this we can rip out and what parts of it are the, these are the, the true the true like pillars of this game and worth keeping and then how do they reshape it but something Anne said about Sierra games made me think about Earth Siege which was a mech simulation game from like 1996 back when Mech Warrior was also a kind of a big thing um, man, I'd like to see someone go back and do mech games again. And I know there's what is it, Steel Battalion? Is there's another Steel Battalion coming out? Which I think that's one layer of it. I'd like to see is kind of embracing this whole, um, this this whole French, this whole kind of genre again. It it feels like it just got too complicated for people like me who are just not smart enough. I I, I need got, something um, somewhere in the middle. You've got FromSoft's Armored Core, right? The, the Sorry, Armored Core. Core. That's what I'm yeah. thinking of. I said Steel Battalion. I meant Armored Core. That was it. But 
Yeah. Um, maybe that... maybe it's something they could take the <clears throat> Titanfall franchise down. <gasps> take, take, take Titanfall make that into a, a bigger. Oh, I don't see Titanfall um, to me. Like the activation phrase. Yeah, this is it. This is. Uh, I love the Titanfall. podcast. Just added an extra hour to its running time. Tommy's gonna. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, welcome to Branching Factor. Let me tell you now about why Titanfall Two is the best game ever made. Um, no, the, I think actually my original answer was going to be Burnout. Um, yeah. mm. Pre. Um, acquisition by Electronic Arts Burnout, so like Burnout Revenge. Like they don't make racing games like that anymore. I'm not a fan of Burnout Paradise and all the other, and then subsequently they did Need for Speed Most Wanted, and um, I didn't. I much preferred the kind of more focused, linear experience of that. I'd like to see something like that again. There we go. That was a very long answer. Sorry, I took forever. Okay, jump to the Discord. Uh. Bernard, one of our top tier patrons, um, said, what's everyone's guilty pleasure game? <laughs> Mike, is it still Dota 2? Yeah, it is, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, I I fixed my RSI problems, which means I can play it again. Um, oh, and no. <laughs> they've, just, they've, they've just made some updates to their kind of arcade, like simplified version of the game, which I like playing because the game's about 25 minutes and I don't need to think. Um, and yeah, it's still good. For the record, I don't believe in guilty pleasures. I have no guilt um, about playing Dota 2, but yeah, it's definitely it definitely fits the description. Glad you fixed your RSI, <laughs> though. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's good. awesome. Yoga yoga has been a major thing, I think. Um, yeah. hmm. <laughs> like a triangle shape. Anyway. <laughs> I was triangle shape not going to be the episode title at this point. <laughs> Quang, what about yourself, sir? Um, so I really hate clicker games on phones because you, you, they just have you in this cycle of clicking every day and trying to just get more stats and more numbers and stuff like that. Um, but somehow I fell into playing X Hero on my phone, and I play that every day. And it's now um, I can't put it down each day because I've got to do my daily tasks and do my dailies and get the, 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 the things. If I miss a day, then I'll get the rewards and stuff like that. And so as much as I hate them, I am now playing X-Hero every day for <laughs> a half an hour to an hour or whatever. Um, that's my guilty pleasure, unfortunately. It sounds like a guilty chore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I wanted to talk. Uh, so my guilty yes. pleasure is also a mobile game. Um, so I have played a shocking amount of Shining Nikki, which is a fashion RPG gotcha game. Oh, it sounds great. Gotcha. You were telling me about it. It sounds awesome. <laughs> I am Googling this now. <laughs> it has some of the most amazing clothing physics I have ever seen. Like, it's rendered in beautiful 3D. And uh, I don't know. it. It's surprisingly well done i guess it's not surprising given the amount of microtransactions that are in there um but yeah i also do my dailies that's the thing <laughs> i i've refused to put any money into x hero oh, here so go. i've got to grind a lot more so if you're not putting money into it to, to get any kitty 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 okay. there you go uh, for our video yeah, list, for so our I... video listeners there is no cats <laughs> Yeah, um, yes. So because I know what sort of game it is, I know it's a clicker, and I'm very aware of what game it is. I'm not gonna. I refuse to put money into it 
but I'm not putting it down. So I've got to grind. So I'm right. now trapped in this game of where I'm clicking every day to make sure I don't miss out on things. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I think I, I I align with with Mike's comment. There's no such thing as a guilty pleasure. It's just it's it's a game that you're maybe a little embarrassed about the first time someone asks you about it. Um, I was going to say for many years it was like I kind of like hack and slash games, just mindless destruction games. So things like uh, Earth Defense Force, um, I absolutely adore those games to the point I made an entire video about it with Rami Ismail, which you should go watch. It was hilarious. I've, that's probably the most fun I've ever had making a video. Um, and things like Hyrule Warriors uh, on the Switch which is Dynasty Warriors, but it's got a Zelda skin on it. And funnily enough, I can't, I hate, I don't like Dynasty Warriors. I've tried playing it and I go, this game's crap. And then they literally give me the exact same thing. And then it's like, now you're fighting Moblins, but you're Link. I'm like, this is the best game ever. Um, I'm, a, I'm aware of how shallow I am when it comes to, it's like, we've literally gave you an asset flip, a very expensive asset flip, but here it is. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so good. Um, and I, it is, I think it's 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 just, I enjoy when you've got 30 minutes to kill or you've had a long day and you just want, it's just, you just want to chip away at something in much the same way that you were saying there about getting all, the, like if it's a clicker game or whatever, just getting the numbers to go up. Like here it's just a number of ants destroyed by my rocket launcher is going up. Um, but yeah, those are, those are probably it um, still to this day. Uh, I've I've stuck with Earth Defense Force since the third one, which came out on the Xbox 360, and that was my introduction to the franchise. Um, I am currently replaying it on the Switch. I had to actually jump through some hoops to figure out how to download it from the Japanese eShop because they've <laughs> never released it in the in the West. And I'm playing that while I bite and I'm playing that and Earth Defense Force 4.1 on my Steam Deck while I'm waiting for Earth Defense Force 6 to get a Western release. Because it came out in Japan last year, and here I am, still waiting very, very patiently. So yeah, that's me. Go play Earth Defense Force, you won't regret it. Um, last question of the day, because this podcast is already way too long. Um, Betic, another regular from our podcast, hello, our Discord server, hello sir. Assuming you were A, willing, and B, able to work on game AI, and you had your pick of any project at all, what game's AI or subsystem would you most want to work on and what would you want to do with slash to it? My bonus answer is if I were a competent AI programmer and I had my pick, I'd love to work on the Stellaris AI because I think with enough work, it could really add a layer to that game's storytelling. Um, so I'll answer this very quickly because I already, I already know my answer. I would like to work on gener generating narrative and I would like to do it in a game that is a wrestling simulator. I would like to work on a wrestling game where yes. we actually embrace kayfabe and we acknowledge that the whole thing is fake. Sorry, spoiler alert. And you're actually deliberately trying to construct interesting scenarios that will result in greater audience engagement and yield more, more views on all your pay-per-views and what have you. I feel like that's like the untapped wrestling game that has never been made. And if someone has made it, please write in and tell me because I will go and play it right now. That's my answer. <laughs> wrestling games. Wrestling. I'll, I'll be quick because I'm not an AI coder. Uh, I am a coder, but I don't really do great AI. It's just random numbers being thrown at thing. But if I was a good AI coder, I would to code some decent 
AI for fighting games. Uh, uh, Street Fighter, I'm a huge Street Fighter fan. And for years, it's, it's not worth playing against a computer because you learn patterns and the patterns are very uh, formulaic and you don't feel like you get a challenge there. And the only way you enjoy fighting games is by playing another human player. Uh, if we can get AI to a point where the AI in a fighting game feels like you're playing another human, that would be incredible. That's where I would want my AI coding to go, I guess. Go for it, Mike. I think Betik's answer is actually uh, great. Um, I, I think I would love to work on Stellaris as well. I think the gap between what the game is doing and what the potential that it has is like really big because Paradox games always have so much potential in them. I'd love to work on that. But I think my other answer would be something like the Hitman games. Um, I've just finished mm. playing Hitman 3 and it's such an interesting game. It's a game about killing people, like assassinating people, but it's really just a social simulation. Like it doesn't feel like a game about murder at all. It's bizarre. And I'd love to like get involved in those social systems and have some emergent narrative, have some people that feel even more alive and doing more interesting stuff. And, um, and of course, get some procedural generation in there because I can't help myself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, God, this is a big question. So I, I will try to keep it short. My like what Mike just described is kind of what I worked on for my PhD. And I would love to kind of get back in that and fix it up. But if I were to do something new and the AI system I would like to work on does not exist in a game currently, which is to create a system that models crafting in a way that is more than just another economy system. So, you know, actually have a, AI that can handle the different processes, the different materials and how things change based on those. So you can actually have some emergent crafting happen. Uh, That is where I would love to spend some time. Yeah, I'd love that too. Awesome. I like that we got four completely different answers. That was (laughs) great. I'm going to have to chew on that further. That wrestling idea has been stuck in my head since I saw Betik's question. And now I'm like, oh, man, <laughs> is, this the, is this the next thing I actually go and make as a wrestling simulator? Um, anyway. But yes, thank you to everyone for submitting your thoughts and feelings to us. Once again, you can do this via the Discord if you are our, one of our patrons on patreon.com forward slash AI and games, but also if you email us at branchingfactor at AI and And with that, I think it's time we bring this episode to a close, ladies and gentlemen. How are we doing? We ready to wrap this up? Had a great time. Yeah. Going to go yes. out and play in the snow, which Let's there is this. none of. Um, is it all melted? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Oh, no. I've, been, I've been watching the snow falling out my window the whole time. I have no idea if it's laid. So we'll we'll find out. But yes, um, thank you all to thank you to all of yourselves uh, for joining us today. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Quang. Uh, thank you, of course, to George who had to leave a little bit early because his job is probably enforcing time constraints on him more than ours um, as we all go back to work. Uh, thanks, of course, to yourselves out there who watched this or listened to this episode of the podcast. Be sure to rate us on your podcast platform of choice. It's super handy. Once again, if you have comments or questions, reach out to us, branchingfactor@aiandgames.com, or you can just harass me at aiandgames.com on Twitter, Mastodon, TikTok, and what have you. Patrons, just harass me in the Discord. I'll be fine. 
Of course, once again, that's AI and Games, patreon.com forward slash AI and Games. You can get all our episodes nice and early. You get them ad free. You get extra opportunities to engage with us. And it's important I shout out to all our top tier patrons who support Branching Factor, our executive producers. That's Scuppy Pup, Brian Umalan, Bernard Werner, who also submitted a question, and Michael Russell. Thank you to everyone, listeners, co-hosts, hosts, submitters of questions, all forms of participants in being here for Branching Factor. This is us wrapping up episode five. We'll be back very soon with another episode for your eyeballs and ears. Take care. Stay safe. We love you. We'll be back. Bye. Bye. See ya. Bye. Playing the music. The Branching Factor podcast is hosted and produced by me, Tommy Thompson, with support from Anne Sullivan, George Osborne, Mike Cook, and Quang Yun. Our theme music is provided courtesy of Ben Ridge, and the logo and thumbnail art is thanks to Helen O'Dell. Special thanks to Shraddha Gumta and Phoebe Trigg for their additional production support, and of course, to all of you out there listening. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Branching Factor. Wherever you are in the world, be sure to stay safe, have fun, and we'll be back. <laughs>